So we're gonna talk about wildfire resistant construction. This is seven minutes of BS. Building science with a beat. Hey Dan, excuse me. Oh hey Fernando, what's up? I was driving by and heard the podcast. Really? I was wondering if we should let the listeners know something about the Career Toolbox podcast. Of course, that's that's a good idea. It's really a great resource, and it well, it kind of feels like the listeners of Seven Minutes of BS <laughs> might be getting ripped off. You got it. As you heard, Fernando and I have launched a new podcast called Career Toolbox with Fernando Pajes. In it. Fernando interviews construction professionals to explore the difference in mindset, habits, and vision between having a day job and building a career. Do yourself a favor and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, Career Toolbox by Pro Tradecraft. Okay, back to the show. I'm Dan Morrison, editor of Pro Tradecraft. Hi, this is Daniel joining the call. And that is Daniel Gorham, a fire engineer and budding ecologist at the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. Wildfire resistant construction is the design of your building, your homes and your businesses and the landscape around it to reduce the vulnerability to the wildfire exposures that might ignite the structure. Wildfire is different from wild land fire. Wild land fire is a regular part of a region's ecology. Regular fires are literally part of the landscape. A lot of plants and animals have evolved to actually require fire in order to survive and reproduce. Lodgepole pine found all over the American West is one species whose seed code is only broken down by fire. Jack pine in the upper Midwest is another. Kirtland's warbler is a bird species that also depends on fire. It nests only in those jack pine forests of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ontario. So that's what wild land fire is. Wildfire is a wild land fire that burns out of control. There's a key distinction there. Naturally occurring wild land fires are cyclical. At least they used to be. Now they're pretty common due to a hundred years of fire suppression and an expanding fire season. Wildfire is different from wild land fire and it's also different from regular old house fires that we have in cities and the burbs. When we're talking about regular old house fires, we talk about fire inside Inside the the box. box. That's your compartment fire, that's your kitchen fire, that's where sprinklers do a really good job. But large outdoor fires, like wildfires, it's, it's kind of a different process how they ignite structures. But the things that we know from interior fire do translate and can help us learn more. So I'm a little bit of a crossbreed between um, fire protection engineering, typically fire inside the box, and fire ecologists, people that typically look at fire in the wildland, in the ecosystem. Buildings in wildlands ignite in one of three ways. First is radiant heat. We're mostly aware of radiant heat as heat from the sun or a campfire. And in a wildfire scenario, this is when you'd have a crown fire or a large flame. Think about sitting around a campfire. Now, radiant heat decreases with distance, so we can reduce that heat transfer by just increasing distance between the big wall of flames and the structure. If a campfire gets too hot, you can back up to cool off. If you move forward, it feels hotter. 
In fact, you can get burned from the sun or a campfire without ever even touching the flame. The second mechanism is direct flame contact. Putting your hand into the fire. And we can prevent this and reduce the potential for this by managing the fuels around structure with defensible space and in that home ignition zone. And the third mechanism, the really important one, is embers or firebrands. It's the little things. And these are the small burning particles that break off from burning vegetation and burning structures can get lofted up by the fire and then blown out by the wind and can travel up to miles ahead of the fire front. Can I just take a minute here to point out that this episode is a lot like the last one where a building scientist talked about heat flow through a building by means of radiant, conductive, and convective transfer. Those same three mechanisms were just described here by a fire engineer. And once again, convection is a big deal. Yeah, so, you know, the smoke starts to go up and that's the buoyant effect. And so larger fires create more buoyancy and can lift not just smoke particles up, but they can lift up, you know, debris particles. And we've seen embers as large as, you know, pine cones and for really large fires, some of these mega fires create their own weather essentially. And their updrafts can lift particles as large as, you know, full sheets of plywood. And, and that burning fuel gets lofted up by the fire. Once it's in the air, wind or air movement from the fire will blow those embers out for distances that can exceed a mile, where they can cross, cross over, over good defensible space, land on and around the structure, and they can ignite it in one of two ways. One, direct ember ignition. They can land on combustible or flammable materials like a combustible roof or combustible siding. They can get into the vents and into the structure and land on combustibles inside. That'd be a direct ember ignition. Or the embers can land on fuels that are on or around the structure. Indirect ember ignition. Think pine needles in the gutter or a bush that you have might have right near your front door. The ember igniting that combustible fuel around the home then ignites the structure and that would be an indirect ember ignition. And we found that up to 90% of home ignitions are attributed to embers. Because the little buggers can work directly or indirectly to burn through your combustibles. And when you're building in a wildland fire zone, there are a lot of combustibles surrounding your combustibles. So, yeah, it's a thing you need to be aware of. Like hurricane areas, fault lines, flood zones, or extremely cold climates, wildland fire is a natural phenomenon that must be designed around. Fire suppression does not work as a long-term strategy because too much fuel builds up causing colossal fires later. And we as humans are choosing to build in areas where those fires are tending to happen. As people are starting to leave city centers or are living out in communities where they have great views of nature and the environment, they're also putting themselves essentially in the perfect scenario of fuels around them, topography to carry fire spread, and the, the weather that we know is changing. So when those fires do happen, we now have structures and homes in the way that could be impacted. Wildfire has always been a phenomenon. 2017 and 2018 in the state of California, some of those mega fires, the Tubbs, the Nuns, the Woolsey, the Camp Fire, those fires with such large losses, this has definitely brought everyone's attention to it. But the fact of the matter is, wildfire losses happen every year in the United States and across the world. 
Sure, the megafires in the west get all the headlines, but really it's the smaller wildfires who are doing the everyday blocking and tackling that keeps firefighters on their toes and insurance adjusters in the essential employee category. On the east coast, we don't think about this, but we saw that in the Pigeon Forge fire in Tennessee, you know, wildfire is not just a western state problem. And, you know, as we have a changing climate, as fuels are starting to change and as people are starting to live in areas that maybe burn, you know, every X number of years, we're starting to have to think about wildfire resistance across the country and in places that we might not normally have done so. Wildfire has always been on the top 10 list of Insurance Institute's risk makers, but it used to be toward the bottom of the list. Nowadays, it's on top because a hundred years of fire suppression has thrown a lot of fuel onto the potential fire, because changing climate has lengthened the regular fire season from summer to year-round, and because more and more people want to live in those exotic and exciting places. And that's why it's really important that when we construct buildings and homes and businesses, communities, that we learn that we're going to live with the fire exposure and we need to, to build to resist that. Which is a heck of a segue into the how to do it right portion of our podcast. What can we do to an existing structure to reduce its vulnerability to wildfire? Um, a, a couple of things, and, and really importantly, is we want to reduce the exposure. So that means the flames and the embers, what can we do to bring that down? We can control the combustibles and the fuels around our home. So that's the vegetative fuels, that's having good defensible space so that we don't have continuous fire spread to the home. That's also structural fuels. The shed in your yard, the patio furniture on your deck, all those things are fuel to the fire and you need to keep them from bringing fire to your front door. But really importantly, is we wanna think about the five foot zone all the way around the home, the immediate zone, where we know embers are going to land and we wanna make that non-combustible. Another thing that we can do is maintaining debris that might accumulate on the structure. This would be in the roof, this would be in the gutter, this would be in and on vents. Reduce your yard exposure, keep your five foot defensible space clear and non-combustible and clear the debris from the building itself. When it comes to breaking ground on new construction. As a rule of thumb, using non-combustible building materials is always preferable. Siding, roofing, deck. If they're not combustible, they won't burn when embers land on them. The other key priority is openings in the structure where embers and flame can enter. Doors, windows, and vents need to be resistant to embers. So for vents, that means non-combustible metal mesh screens eighth of an inch or smaller, or specific vents that can reduce or resist both ember and flame intrusion. Dan says they chose an eighth inch, not because they think it'll keep embers out. Embers are gonna get in. Whatever size mesh is used, embers get caught in it and they'll burn down. When they burn down to an eighth inch, they can enter the house and look for combustibles. It's that these embers don't have a whole lot of thermal power behind their shrimpy little eighth inch bodies. Embers that can get through a code-approved quarter-inch mesh, they can pack a little more punch. It's another case where exceeding the code is a good idea. Smaller mesh sizes, like a sixteenth inch, accumulate debris, which cuts down on the airflow and potentially can be a direct ignition hazard. 
soffit vents, ridge vents, and gable vents are all susceptible to ember intrusion. So it's important to consider the appropriate venting strategy and products when designing the roof system. So we looked at gable vent, soffit vents, and ridge vents for different wind speeds and different types of ember exposures. And all three vent types are vulnerable to embers. Um, the gable, because it's a flat surface and if you blow embers right against it, can be particularly vulnerable. But the under eave vents, the embers can still essentially blow up into that eave area. And we saw that embers can still get in through there. And for the ridge vents, again, embers coming at it, the peak of the roof can get into that ridge vent. Of course, an, an unvented roof kind of, kind of removes, removes the problem of the vent as a pathway altogether. If you don't understand how to build an unvented roof, there's a podcast for that too. It may be wise to substitute rock wool insulation for rigid foam board if exterior insulation is part of the unvented roof strategy. A couple other aspects of roof design are pitch and overhangs. Pitch works about the same way for roof debris as it does for rain. The steeper the roof, the harder it will be for debris to accumulate on it. You know, just think about a ball rolling down a hill. The steeper the hill, the faster the ball rolls. And the faster the rain gets away from the roof. Overhangs in rainy areas are often a good idea because they shelter the walls and they push rainwater farther away from the house. In fire design, though, they're a problem. We know that that under eave area can be particularly vulnerable if there's fire beneath it. If that bush underneath the eave does ignite from the ember and burns up into that eave area, that's a worse fire scenario than if you didn't have the eave there at all. Essentially, the eave is creating a ceiling, trapping in all that heat and flame from the burning bush, um, and, and that's thermal exposure to the structure. For windows, use multi-pane tempered glass. That'll reduce the radiant and direct contact potential, which could break the glass, opening a hole in your defensive line that embers and flames can walk right through. Skylights are like windows, only a little more problematic. Skylights essentially creates just another opening. Debris accumulates on the roof. Debris can accumulate on and around the skylight. That debris can be ignited by embers, and that burning debris could break the skylight, and that creates the pathway. Somewhat surprisingly, decks are not a deal breaker. While it's probably a good idea to consider decking that's non-combustible, or consider a patio, the framing choice is really the most important one. The deck is essentially vulnerable to two types of exposures, embers on top and fire underneath. Embers that land on top often fall into the gaps between the deck boards where they can ignite the joists. But also it can fall between the boards and land in debris underneath and cause an under deck flame. In the lab, they did testing on various decking products, both wood and composite, and they found that- And what we found was that all create really bad fire scenarios for the structure the deck was attached to. And, and this really kind of boils down to, it's not about the deck board, but we think it's more about the joist or the framing that the board is on. Then they framed some decks with metal and blew another wall of embers at them. Lo and behold. You can still have a combustible walking surface, whether it's redwood or composite, and that deck with the metal joist and frame performs better than any of the other decks, regardless of the walking surface. The predictable pushback to this stuff is that it might cost more. But when you accuse engineers of something, they try to prove you wrong. We actually did a study and we used a model home in Montana 
and we built it from ground up. So this is new construction and building A, we chose traditional building materials and building B, we chose a wildfire resistant building materials. I think we all know what's coming next. And we found that the cost difference is nominally the same. And in fact, wildfire resistant construction can cost less than traditional construction. The main point here is that wildfire resistant construction is affordable. And when you have the choice, the wildfire resistant material can look better, can last longer, and can make your home wildfire resistant. <laughs>